ask you to take a copy of the scripture and turn to Isaiah chapter 8. Page 572 in the House Bible. Rezin, the king of Syria, and by 
Hekka, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel. And Isaiah is commissioned by God to bring a message to King Ahaz and to the house of David, the people of Judah, that they should not fear the threats of men, but put their trust in the Lord. But Ahaz, in his unbelief, rejected God's covenant, and he put his trust in Assyria, the great world power of that day. And of course, some of us are tempted to disbelieve God's promises, to waver in our faith, and to put our hopes somewhere else, in something or someone else, besides the Lord God Almighty. And because of that, Judah was in danger of becoming just like her neighbor to the north, Israel, in danger of following the same path of that northern kingdom who had long ago abandoned faith in God's covenant promise. For one generation after God made the promise with David, that original united kingdom of the 12 tribes of Israel and Judah experienced peace and prosperity under David's son, Solomon. But later it was torn, right, between the ten tribes in the north, uh, variously called Israel or Ephraim or Samaria, which uh, rejected the Davidic dynasty and set up for themselves a new kingship. And then the southern two tribes, which came to be known as Judah, who followed David's line. But now, King Ahaz of Judah was abandoning his hope in God and God's ability to keep his covenant promises. And he was in danger, and then that nation then became in danger of suffering the same fate as unbelieving Israel. And this sermon today is for, for those who are wavering in their faith, who are doubting God's promises, who are struggling to believe all that God has assured us of in his covenant with us. Those who are tempted to look to the world for their peace and for their comfort and for their hope. Friends, may God give us open ears to hear what the Lord says to us today. In this section, we find at the very beginning a judgment pronounced upon unbelief. In chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, Isaiah predicts judgment because of unbelief. Beginning in verse 5, chapter 8. The Lord spoke to me again because this people, speaking now of the northern kingdom of Israel or Samaria, because this people has refused the waters of Shaloah that flow gently. Now that's a reference to the stream that flowed from the spring called Gihon that was near to Jerusalem. The waters of that uh, spring were actually collected in a pool later called the Pool of Shiloh or the Pool of Siloam. Because, and, and, and that this was significant, of course, because that place, Gihon, was the very place that David 
asked for the priest to come and meet him in order to anoint his son after him to sit upon the throne that God promised to David's descendants forever. In other words, this is a picture of the Davidic covenant here. And, and so Isaiah is saying in verse 6 that Israel has rejected that covenant, the gentle waters of Shiloh, and instead they rejoice over Rezin, the king of Assyria, and the son of Remaliah, which is the uh, Pekah that's the son of Israel. And notice that uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah calls him simply the son of Remaliah. He doesn't even name him by name, as if his name is not important, because what's significant is that he's not a son of who? A son of David, exactly. And so, because these people have rejected God's covenant and have embraced their own power and authority and self-determination, he says, therefore, verse 7, Behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. That is, the river, the great, mighty river Euphrates, which runs through the empire of Assyria at this time. This, the Lord is bringing upon them the waters of the river, mighty and many, metaphorically, it says, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise up over the banks and all of its channels, go up over all of its banks. The covenant line of David was the gentle flowing waters of Siloam, but in rejecting that, now Israel will be overrun, Isaiah says, by the Assyrian army raging across their land like the swollen uh, overflow, flooding rivers of the Euphrates. God will bring judgment upon you in the form of the Assyrians, he says. And verse 8, and it will sweep on into Judah as well. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. Oh, Emmanuel. So Judah, too, because of her unbelief, will be, as it were, barely able to keep her head above water in this onslaught of Assyria, the Assyrian army. And this is exactly what happens whenever we put our trust in anything in the world. It turns against us. One writer said, to choose a savior other than the Lord is to choose a destroyer. We think that thing is going to do us good. We think it's going to help us. We think it's going to be our security, our deliverer, our savior. And in fact, it turns out to be exactly the opposite, which is what Assyria was for Ahaz and the people of Judah. So, for a time, the Bible says that judgment, God's judgment, would sweep over what he calls Emmanuel's land. And when that ultimate Emmanuel came, when he came who was God with us, God in the flesh, when Jesus Christ was born into this world, friends, he came into a cursed land and into a cursed world. In fact, the, 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 the blessing for us is that he came to bear that curse for us. Emmanuel came 
under the curse of God, under that cursed land, the curse fell upon him for the sins of all who are his people. They ought to have received the curse from God, but the Son of God, the, the Emmanuel, he received it upon himself so that the curse for us, brothers and sisters, might be lifted. Amen? That we might be delivered from God's curse, that we might enter the new and heavenly Jerusalem, heavenly Mount Zion, and experience all of the covenant blessings of God rather than the covenant curses. Emmanuel came to a land that was cursed, and that's why there can be, secondly in this text, a hope. And there is a hope for the remnant, those whom God would preserve, whom he would bring back to the land, whom he would reestablish there and cause them to grow and bear much fruit, that is, those who persevered in faith. Verses 9 and 10, hope for the remnant. There may be against Judah conspiracies of nations arrayed against them in all of their power, but they have on their side what? Emmanuel, God with us. So, verse 9, he says to the invading powers and nations, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. And I can't help but believe that, that Isaiah had Psalm 2 in mind. The nations of the world, what? Take counsel together, conspiracy together against the Lord and against his anointed. But what does the scripture say? The son who is on the throne, the king, will dash them into pieces, right? And of course, this found fulfillment exactly in the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us that Herod and Pontius Pilate conspired together to put our Lord to death and to try to thwart the purposes of God. And they ended up just speeding them to their end. And so, believer, be reminded then by this that no purpose arrayed against you, against God's purpose for you, can stand. Because God is the sovereign over all things, and he ensures by his sovereignty that every one of his covenant purposes will come to pass. There, there is a great security in these promises, and that security is embodied in the very Son of God, the virgin-born Son of God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, is the foundation of our faith. Emmanuel, friends, is our hope. Emmanuel is our boast. Every good blessing that comes upon us, every assurance that we will have, all of the blessings of God upon our lives, are because of, wrapped up in Emmanuel. It is because God is with us that we have this hope. And the question that 
stands in front of this gathering crowd today is the question of whether these promises and this covenant applies to you. Whether you have an interest in the covenant love of God or not. How is it with you? In verses 11 to 22, we see that there are two different kinds of people in Judah. There are unbelievers like Ahaz, and there are those who clung to God in faith like Isaiah and his disciples. So in verses 11 to 22, we see now thirdly a distinction among the people, a separating out of a kind of remnant that truly belongs to God in Israel, within Israel, if you will. Verse 11, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy what this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. You see in this text two responses, right? Two different responses to the covenant promise of God. On the one hand, there was fearfulness that the covenant promises would fail, that God would not live up to his word, that he wasn't able to take care to ensure in the face of these threats and conspiracies that he was not able to ensure that what he said would in fact come to pass. There's fear on the one hand, and on the other hand, there's faith. There's the faith of those who are truly God's people. There are two responses we see here to Emmanuel. On the one hand, there are those who find Emmanuel, God with us, to be their sanctuary. They put their hope in him. They take refuge in him. And they are filled with joy and peace and confidence, even in the face of these terrible threats. But on the other hand, there are those who stumbled over that stone that God had put as the foundation stone for Mount Zion. There are those who tripped over Emmanuel, who failed to put faith and trust in him, really were entrapped then in their unbelief. And that really, I think, was the majority of, of the people uh, of Judah. Verse 14, the end of the verse, he says to those people, that this stone of stumbling would become a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many, he says, will stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. And of course, there was certainly an application of that in Ahaz's day. There were many who, who stumbled in unbelief failed to obtain the promises of God. But I think the ultimate significance of this is for how you and I respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that really is, I think, the 
the meaning behind verse 16, we continue to go in the text where the Lord tells Isaiah that this vision is, is about something beyond Isaiah's day. We looked at this before, right? Verse 16, bind up the testimony and seal the teaching among my disciples because the message is ultimately for not Isaiah's day, but for a latter day. The day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, verse 17, Isaiah expresses faith in that promise, that covenant that God had made with his people in, uh, in David. Isaiah expresses faith even in the midst of the darkness of the situation that he faced. And it was dark, it was bleak. Right? All of these nations are amassed on his borders. Conspiracy to overthrow the government. And we've never lived through a coup. This is exactly what they face. At any moment, your whole world can be turned upside down. And literally, God's people have faced that kind of scenario. And here they are facing it with faith. Isaiah expresses it in verse 17. Verse 17, I will what? Are you with me? Verse 17, I will wait for the Lord. Who at the moment, he says, is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will what? I will hope in him. Friends, God may appear for a time to hide his face from us. It may appear for a time that he has turned his back. But believers always continue to wait, to trust him. They continue to hope in him. So verse 18, he says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah and his family were signs to Israel. Isaiah's name, perhaps, was a sign. For Isaiah means God, Yahweh, saves, which in fact is very similar the name Joshua, or in the New Testament, what? Jesus. And Isaiah's two sons certainly explicitly were given to Judah as signs. The first of his sons pointed to the believing remnant within Judah. Remember what his name means, that first son? A remnant shall return. His first son pointed to the believing remnant and his second, as we saw last week, foreshadowed the coming Emmanuel, that is Christ himself, which indicates that Christ and the believing remnant are brothers, which in fact is the way that the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, is using this text. We read that a little bit earlier. What a gracious love of the Savior to consider us brothers, amen? What an amazing, condescending grace and love to enter, the, our Savior to enter knowingly into the frailty and the brokenness of this world that he might experience what we experience, to take upon himself human flesh and to enter, to enter into all of the temptations and the struggles that you have ever known. That the Savior might call you and I brethren. What a blessing that he so loved us that we might be many sons brought to glory as brothers of our elder, 
What an amazing thing that he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters to stand before his Father in heaven and to look down upon us and to say, these are my brothers and sisters. Love them as you love me. What an amazing thing to have a Savior like that. And the blessing of the believing remnant uh, was that they followed the faith of Isaiah, resting in not what they saw with their eyes, but with the word that came from the mouth of the living God. And that's what you see in verse 19. Isaiah says, When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, that is, you know, go, go seek an answer, an omen from the people who are able to communicate with the spirits, communicate with the dead, so to speak. He says, when they say that to you, he says, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Far be it from God's people to look for ultimate answers anywhere but the word of the living God. Why do we go to those who are spiritually dead to get the counsel and the advice and the, and the direction for how we should live our lives? Our answers are given to us from the one who lives, from the one who has life in himself. What foolishness on the part of these people. And so he says, verse 20, to the teaching and the testimony. That's where you should go, right? Run to the word that is revealed from God. The word of the prophets. The word of his testimony. If they, these other counselors, if they do not speak according to this word, if their counsel is not in keeping with the testimony of the living God, then it is because they have no dawn, they have no light, they're just a bunch of people who are blind trying to tell you how to live. And if you follow them, you'll be blind following the blind. So he says, Verse 21, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against the, their king and their God. And turn their faces upward as if in defiance of God. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. In this passage, we see that there were two kinds of people within Judah, and two kinds of people sitting in a, in a sanctuary like this today. There are, on one hand, those people who believe God's word, who listen to his testimonies, who receive them, who accept them, who look to Christ, Emmanuel, as their hope, who walk in the light that God has revealed. On the other hand, there are people who turn to other supposed sources of worldly wisdom and knowledge. They trust in 
the things of the world. They doubt the promises of God, and as a result, they walk in darkness. So which one are you? It really comes down to it. That is the question to take home with you today. Which one are you? Which one will you be? What will be your response to the word of God, to the covenant promises of God, and to the Emmanuel whom God has sent? How will your soul relate to these things? And that the answer to those questions, my friends, is will make all the difference in the entire world for you. And all the difference for eternity. generations, so much of the world sat in darkness, the darkness of ignorance and superstition, consulting the mediums and the necromancers, worshiping the idols of the world, the things that are made rather than the one who made them. Consider how long the great nations of the ancient world worshiped in darkness, without any light. Without the knowledge of God's company, without access to God in the person of Emmanuel. But then the light came into the world, right? Emmanuel, God with us. And this last section, chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, looks forward prophetically to that day when the light would dawn upon the remnant. Israel and from there would spread to all of the nations of the world. Chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. This is that northern kingdom. It's that same area he's talking about. The Lord brought into contempt that land, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So Isaiah foresaw a day when the light would dawn even upon Israel, even upon Samaria, even upon the tribes of the north, Ephraim and Naphtali and Zebulun, even upon that land of the Galilee, and the, that the gospel would go from there out to the nations of the world. And this, we know, was fulfilled, amen? It has been and is being fulfilled when our Lord came to earth and called men from Galilee, from that very area, from Zebulun and Naphtali to be his disciples. And when he commissioned his disciples in Galilee, and when he spoke to them these words, you shall be witnesses for me, where? In Jerusalem and in Judea, and up there in Samaria in the north, and from there to the uttermost parts of the world. And this is exactly what we see. We're living, and we have a, a tremendous joy and privilege to live in the, in the unfolding of the fulfillment of that uh, prophecy, this very prophecy that we're reading right here. We're, we're, we're sitting in the middle of it. We're watching it unfold. What a joy. 
What a joy to see that the nations that sat in darkness for generation after generation, for hundreds and perhaps even thousands of years, that those nations are now seeing the light, that the gospel light of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, the Son of God, is being boldly proclaimed in the nations of the world. Amen? Amen? Amen. All right, amen. It is a joy. Our Savior is being heralded across the globe. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, number in the kingdoms around this world. What a, I don't, you don't want to lose sight of the tremendous uh, answer, the tremendous fulfillment that is being unfolded here right in front of our eyes. And yet, of course, we acknowledge that there still is so much to do, right? We all feel that the numbers of those who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ around this world and the nations of the world are far, far too few in number. That those who preach a false gospel and another uh, savior are far too many. And that so many people still do lie in darkness in the world. And of course, there could be no greater calling, I think, for any young person any old person for that matter than to go to the end of the earth as Jesus said carrying bearing the gospel of Jesus Christ that those who sit in darkness even now may see the light and what a joy it is isn't it when the light comes on for people spiritually to watch someone be born again to come from darkness into light in the kingdom of darkness of the kingdom of God's dear son. Oh, may you have ears to hear the Lord's call. Serve him. Wherever he puts you. That the Lord may call men and women to carry the gospel to the farthest reaches of the globe. The light of the world would come and it would spread Isaiah said, from Galilee out to the nations. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. He says it in the past tense, a lot of this, almost as if this is such a certainty that God will bring this to pass that it's as, as if it's already being, as if it's already happened. Right? The people who dwelt in darkness have seen a great light, on them the light has shone. Verse 3, you, O God, have multiplied the nation. So the ingathering of all of the Gentiles from all of the world's nations into the people of God is the expanding of his people. It's the growth of that nation. It's the unfolding and flourishing of the new Israel, the new Jerusalem, if you will, as Isaiah will pick up again in chapter 54 when he says, enlarge the, the, the tent of Israel and the curtains of your habitation, strengthen the stakes and spread out the tent because you're going to have people from all over the globe come into the house of Israel. You will spread abroad to the right and to the left. Your offspring will possess the nation. This is what Isaiah sees. He sees it 
in his visionary mind's eye when a world full of people are coming into Jerusalem to worship and serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He goes on and says that this light that will come to those nations will bring incredible joy. Right? You just can't help but miss the great joy that will be to all people when you read these verses. Verse 3, the end of the verse. You have increased the nation's joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. Which reminds me of Isaiah 53, right? He divides the spoil with the strong. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as in the day of Midian, which is a reference to the deliverance of God's people back in the days of Gideon, when this very people, the people of the north, uh, were under the the thumb of the Midianites. He said, the deliverance of that day when Emmanuel comes and the gospel begins to go forth from Samaria and Galilee to the ends of the earth, that day will be a day that will bring the nations great joy, the people of God great joy. Verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. He is looking forward to that day when God will destroy all opposition to his people, all whose robes are red in the blood of the martyrs. Where will this deliverance come from? How will it come? And the answer is the same as it's been from the beginning of chapter 7. The Son who is promised. Verse number 6. For to us, Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon its shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is that promised virgin-born son of chapter 7, verse 14. He will come into the world and break the rod of the oppressor of God's people. He will break the rod from off their shoulders by taking the government onto his own shoulder. He will become the king. They will not serve any evil despot, but now they will serve the king of peace. Amen? They will serve the Lord of lords. They will bow under his good and kind lordship. This is the kingdom of God that we're talking about. That was announced by the forerunner of the Emmanuel, that is John the Baptist, and was announced by our Lord Jesus Christ himself. This kingdom of God, presently invisible in its form, as Luke chapter 17 verse 20 says, with Christ taken out from our physical view and seated and throned in the heavenly places, but reigning nonetheless, reigning over all of his people. Wherever true Christians submit to his lordship, there his kingdom is manifest. There it comes to light. 
He rules over his people whose job it is, as Calvin said, to make his invisible kingdom visible on earth as they submit to his lordship and live it out in every area of their lives. The keys to the kingdom of heaven are upon his shoulder. As we read in other passages of scripture, and when he unlocks the door and opens it to you, guess what? No one can shut it. Amen? Which is such a comfort and an assurance for the people of God. When the Lord Jesus brings you into his kingdom, there is no being thrust out. You are his and you're his forever. But when he shuts the door to you, no man can open it. There is no other way into the kingdom of blessedness and peace and worldwide joy. There is no other way into that kingdom except through the Lord Jesus Christ who bears upon his shoulder the government of that kingdom. The ability and the right to exercise who comes in, who comes in and who goes out to open and to shut and to rule over it all character of this royal son is described in four ways in this text, so familiar to us every Christmas, right? We, we sing it and we, we think about it. He is the wonderful counselor, which I think speaks of the sovereignty. He takes counsel in himself and not with anyone else, but also it speaks of his wisdom his counsel, his rule is wonderful. It is marvelous. It is miraculous and it is sweet and good. David's son, you think about this, David's son Solomon, he was considered, you know, like the wisest king, right? And yet he is no comparison to this king whose wisdom surpasses all. Ahaz, King Ahaz, on the other hand, who sits on David's throne at the time of Isaiah is a terrible counselor. And of course, the truth is that the decisions of the king, they either make or break the kingdom. And here is a king whose wisdom, whose counsel, will cause the kingdom of God to flourish on the earth, to be filled with peace and joy and delight. And Christ's reign will be a kingdom of perfect wisdom. And if you would submit to the rule, you too would find that his burden is easy, his yoke is light. This is the path of joy. He is the wonderful counselor. He is, secondly, the mighty God. And this one just has to blow your mind. When you get to this place in Isaiah's prophecy, you say, This is way bigger than I can imagine. Because that term, the very term, the mighty God, is used of God himself in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21. It reads this way, a remnant will return a remnant to Jacob, to the mighty God. So here is a son, a promised son, who is nothing less than God in human 
flesh. In the fullest sense, now, he is Emmanuel with us, God. Being in the kingdom of this Son is what it is like to be ruled directly by God himself. It is a kingdom of God himself in the person of his Son, a mighty God. Currently, he is called the Everlasting Father because in the Son we see the Father's glory. It's not to say that the Son is the Father. But that in the Son we see the Father's glory, and that in his reign we see his fatherly care over his people. The one who said, I will not leave you orphans. Right? This Son, his kingdom, his fatherly rule over his people will be everlasting. Because kingdoms of the world come and go. And who knows that a man may work all of his life to build up something great, and then the man who comes after him will undo it all with the word of his decree, right? And everything that he built up his entire life will be lost. I mean, it happens to us from one administration of our government to the next, and the policies that the one administration worked so hard for four or eight years to put in place, the next one just undoes with a, a signature of a pen. But his kingdom is everlasting. His fathership, his governance of his people, like a father who cares for his own, that is everlasting and eternal. And then, fourthly, he is the prince of what? Prince of peace. Like Solomon, whose name means peace. Or like Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem, Shalom, the king of peace. Wherever you find Jesus Christ's kingdom among men, you will find peace with God and peace within, peace within that kingdom. You will find a group of people, uh, a culture, uh, a home, a church that's characterized by love, Joy, peace, right? Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Oh, that our lives were more characterized by these things. That our families were manifestly places where the Prince of Peace rules. That our church, churches of our land, were places where the Prince of Peace was very clearly manifesting his kingdom. And ultimately, that that may extend even to our communities and to our world. The Prince of Peace. And we can be encouraged that his kingdom will grow. And we can rejoice that, like a little mustard seed, the kingdom of God starts small grows into a tree in which the birds of the air can make their nests. It is like that mount, that stone cut out without hands that comes and crushes the kingdoms of men and then grows to fill the whole earth with the glory of God's kingdom 
So verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be what? On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So it's a kingdom that is global and it's a kingdom that is eternal. And how do we know that this will happen? Because it sure doesn't seem like it. Am I right? I mean, there are days when you wake up and say, where is the kingdom of God in this world? Where is the prince of peace? It seems threatened by the evil conspiracies of ungodly men. On every turn, it seems to be threatened. What do the people of God do? Where is their hope? Let me tell you, their hope and their confidence is in the covenant promises of God. And Isaiah ends it this way, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Amen? We can rest on it. It is the zeal of God himself for his own glory and for the glory of his beloved Son that ensures that all of his purposes for the kingdom of God will come to pass every single one. We can believe this and rest on this in the face of all kinds of threats, personally and in our, in our world around us. I just love the way this ends. With such certainty and such hope, it is, it is as if after giving us all of these promises and all of these uh, covenantal purposes, God himself signs his name at the end. I will make certain of this. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of lords. The Lord who commands the angelic might of all of the universe. The Lord who spoke everything into existence. The Lord who started history and providentially govern every aspect of it to where we are now, we'll certainly see that it comes out to where he intended. There is great hope then for those of us who are the Lord's people to persist in faith, not to waver. Not to waver in faith in the face of personal afflictions or temptations or the, the troubles of the world outside of us. Not to waver in spite of the failures that we see even among God's people, but to persist in faith that all of God's promises are true. To believe in spite of the odds, as it were, in wisdom. Like Isaiah, who said, I will wait for the Lord. His hand is against us right now. He's turned his hidden his face from us, but I will hope in him. That we would fear the great judgment of God that may fall upon those who do not fear the Lord, like Ahaz, who persisted in unbelief in the midst of God's people. God forbid that there should be any of us who would persist in unbelief for all that God has revealed to us, for all that he has assured us of. Christ's kingdom will triumph over all. It may seem to you like it did to Ahaz that the world is falling apart, or that your world is falling apart. But like, like even in those times when God is hiding his face and temptation is to fear, or to trust in worldly ways, or to look for counsel somewhere other than the word of the living God, his teaching, testimony, 
or when we are tempted because of the afflictions, like some in Judah, we are tempted to speak contemptuously of our Lord and King. In the midst of all of that, we are encouraged. And here's the bottom line, friends. Believers believe. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Believers believe. They believe the covenant promises of God, every one of them. All of the purposes of God will come to pass. They do not doubt. They confess their wavering. And they run back again to Him in faith. Brothers and sisters, friends, please keep looking to Emmanuel, God with us, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. God is calling you this morning to cast yourself on his covenant promises. To rest your whole life in the zeal of the Lord of hosts to perform all that he's promised. Today is the day of decision for you. Stop limping between two opinions like Judah. Stop going back and forth and to say with all your heart, Lord, you have made these promises. This is my hope. I will bank everything on this. I will, I will bet, as it were, everything. Because it is no bet when you have the assurance of the one who is ordaining everything to you day in every night. And so you may live joyfully in the kingdom. God's virgin-born Son. And I tell you again that all who take refuge in Him are blessed. Blessed. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Lord Jesus, we thank you for speaking to us from his word today. Please continue to give us hearts of faith to receive, to be blessed by this word that we have received.